Hello and welcome to Friendings. My name is Sabina and I'm here to take a look at the end of friendships, how that loss is experienced, grieved and made sense of over time. It's not something we tend to talk about and I'd like to change that. Alright, here we go. It's season two of Friendings. And if you've returned after listening to season one, thank you and welcome back. I'm so glad you're still here with me. I have taken a couple of months off and I kind of want to do things a little bit differently this year. In the time I've had off, I've been busy setting up my own space where I can record this podcast and do some other work. It's what Virginia Woolf might call a room of one's own. And I am loving having this space. I realised that I set a bit of a cracking pace for myself last year with the episode drops. And, you know, I'm a pretty avid podcast listener and usually podcasts tend to be released you know weekly and I thought okay I'll try and do that but then I realized that these podcasts that I listen to have like teams of people hosts and producers and writers and executive producers the list goes on and with friendings this is just me and I'm my own boss so I've decided I'm going to be a cool boss going to set realistic expectations. I'm going to be pretty clear about what my expectations are. I'm going to respect my energy and my time and also respect your time. So my plan for season two is to put out an episode at the start of each month. Maybe even set an intention in each episode. Something for us to just tune into for that month where our friendships are concerned. It's just something I'm toying with. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You can join in and try it on or you can not. It's totally up to you. I often set little tasks for myself for a day or for a week before long I've forgotten all about it. And that might well happen here. But if I don't forget all about it, I might report back and let you know how I went. And if you're joining in, you are always welcome to let me know how you're going. You can reach me via Instagram DMs at friendings.show. So get in touch. Let me know how you're going with it, what you've noticed, and I'll try and do the same. I haven't really mapped out what season two is going to look like, but I can confidently say that we are kicking off with a bit of a banger. In this episode, I speak with a clinical and forensic psychologist about all things friendship. Her name is Dr. Ahona Guha. She's based in Melbourne and she's a trauma specialist. So we started off talking about the importance of being trauma-informed in our relationships and being psychologically safe friends to each other. And then we went into a whole bunch of psychological terms that, you know, you see bandied around on social media. And I just really wanted to deepen my understanding of some of those. 
things like attachment theory and victim mentality, saviour complex. We talked about when to walk away from a friendship, whether we need to make amends, a whole lot of stuff that I've been wrestling with and some of my guests from last season have also been looking at. I really valued this chat and Dr Guha's insights and professional perspective. I think the biggest takeaway was to not overthink and not overanalyze and just to allow that people have their stuff just like we have our stuff and the necessity to show each other grace and just let things slide. In fact, maybe that's our homework for this month. Just see if we can catch ourselves maybe being pulled into overthinking what might be going on between us and a friend. So without further ado, here is my chat with Dr. Guha. I hope you enjoy. Hello, I'm here today with Dr. Ahona Guha, a Melbourne-based clinical and forensic psychologist who works within the public forensic mental health system, so that means working with offenders. And she also has a private psychology practice. Dr. Guha's 2023 book, Reclaim, Understanding Complex Trauma and Those Who Abuse, has been tremendous in helping me improve my understanding of trauma and harmful behaviour as part of my quest to be a decent human and a better friend. Dr. Guha also has a new book out, Life Skills for a Broken World, and judging by that title, it has to be the quintessential guide for these complex and challenging times we find ourselves in. Dr. Guha's mission is for us all to lead psychologically healthy and relationally safe lives. And she joins us today to share some insight into the factors that can be at play when we face friendship challenges. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Guha, and welcome to Friendings. Thank you so much, Sabina. Very much a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Now, I'll just start with some of your words from Reclaim. And early on in the book, you note that we struggle with relationships more than ever in our hyper-connected, super busy worlds. Structures of close relating like kindness, compassion, careful thought and regard for others have drifted away in the currents of work, achievement, travel, social media, online dating and relentless array of options. And we tend to treat other people like they are disposable. But at the same time, we're also lonely and really worried about our relationships and we're struggling to grow connections. It just resonated so much. And I guess there's a part of me that thought, oh, it's just being an adult and it's hard making friends as an adult because you have to be a lot more intentional about it. But then there's yeah. all this contextual stuff that we need to take into account that we're not operating in a vacuum. And you do that a lot in your book. You draw the connection between the personal and the political, which is something that I'm very passionate about. And so, you know, we are really up against it, it seems. And then to add on top of that, considerations like trauma means yeah. it's quite fraught. It feels like there's certainly this very difficult confluence between the social and also the political at this point in time. And one of the things that I always draw us back to are the bigger structural issues facing us, because I think within our world, there's this really strong emphasis on just trying to attribute 
blame, cause, responsibility to, to the individual. So things like trauma, things like mental health, things that are situated within the person. And I think that those are certainly there and they're important factors for us to be looking at. But it's also really important to also be looking at the bigger structures around us. And what I'm seeing a lot of at this point in time is a lot of isolation, a lot of um, disconnection, a lot of anger, a lot of difficulty understanding and truly relating to other people, whether that's friends. And I know that that's the focus of what we'll be talking about today, but just other individuals. It feels like it's really hard for us at the moment. And there's so much happening and so many demands on our attention and our time. Mm. I think that really make this very challenging. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. And I think time for me, becoming a mother, that certainly has has been a huge issue. But even, you know, just with work and life is just so busy. Chaotic, isn't it? Like, like, the, like the word that you used before, that we have to be more intentional. And I really think that that's the trick with adult friendships. And I've just been writing about this for my next book so not my second but my third so wow. i've really spent a lot of time immersed in thinking about friendship recently and it struck me that as kids we often just hang out with other people because we go to school together or we're on the school bus and there's lots of space to form friendships because we are there together in the same space whereas as adults when we are with another person it's often because we are doing something together so we might be at work together or we might be in a class together or we are not just hanging out so there's more effort required, I think, to really prioritize time together. And when we all have busy social calendars or lives, really just carving out time to be intentional, to actually connect with the person, which is, you know, probably thinking about it why I do most of my friendship catch-ups one-on-one instead of in bigger groups, because I like that one-to-one, either FaceTime or parallel play, where we go and do a pottery workshop together. Yeah, I tend to... Um work like that as well I, I sort of have disparate groups of friends I've never had like a big crew and I've always been really envious of people who can like manage a big crew but I've just never <laughs> been able to do it yeah that yeah. in itself is a skill it is true I think but I, I, I think that probably comes down to as well how and where you grew up because I know we were we were talking about this before you started recording that we both grown up overseas and moved here so we've all changed lives and we've all moved um, countries continents and states mm. and that probably meant that we've had to shift our social circles because we haven't grown up like other people with friends you went to primary school with which is often where that sense of I had this big group that I carry through life can often come from. Actually it's funny I've been reflecting on that recently I came across a comment that somebody else made which resonated so deeply this person didn't have a close family and she didn't feel really connected and understood within her family of origin. And so for her, her friends were the people that understood her and accepted her fully. And That's so, your chosen family. Yeah, exactly, your chosen family. You know, I mean, here I am making a podcast about friendship. It's a passion project for me. I've done a lot of thinking about my friendships my friendships have been really, really important to me and I'm just coming to realise that one of the things I think my parents didn't bargain for when we moved from India to Australia was that they were going to potentially lose their children to the new culture. And I've heard of, you know, our generation being referred to as the third culture where you don't belong at home back in India 
but you don't quite belong in your new home, being Australia mm. for, for us. And so you're in this kind of in-between space. It's stage. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and it is quite a unique experience. And so you end up, well, for me, I ended up, you know, really focused on assimilating and fitting in as you do as, mm. a, as a kid generally. And so mm. I kind of shunned everything about the old life. And yeah. just focused on, you know, being an Australian and, and fitting in here. And, you know, mm. my friendships played a huge part. I think you've certainly highlighted something in that your family couldn't offer you something. You know, even though I'm, I'm absolutely sure your mom and dad did their best, but they weren't part of this culture. So really the links of the bridges to this culture, to, to feeling like you're part of something, but have come from your friends. Yeah, very much. Friends can give you sometimes, I think, the sense of... I belong somewhere is really important and that's something that we often struggle with culturally I think you know where are my roots because we could you're so so global and so and so mobile yes that, that's right and mobility due to work and you know moving states as yeah. you know I've done with my husband quite a bit that in itself you know makes you okay. sort of focus on, yeah. on establishing those connections that makes sense yeah you yeah. don't have those things to take for granted um, yeah. When you've got that mm. continuity, and I know when you've written about friendship previously, there was sort of three. So you've got the situation that yeah. brings friends together. Then you need the frequency of contact to really kind of start cementing a friendship, yeah. and common interests also helps. Yeah. And then taking that friendship into a new context to kind of see if it's got legs beyond, exactly. you know, the initial context. So yeah. if you've made a friend at work, then you might. Yeah, suggest yeah. a coffee or a dinner after work or some drinks or something and just slowly kind of go exactly. and testing from there. Yeah. And I did want to talk to you about pacing of friendships in mm. that regard. But I think first I wouldn't mind just talking about reclaim and the idea that we can all become more trauma-informed. You know, everywhere we look mm -hmm. right now, trauma, it's a buzzword. Everyone's talking about it. And our understanding of it tends to be fairly simplistic, kind of what you can get in a social media post, which, you know, it's yeah. a start, but uh, not very nuanced. But if we can recognise the potential trauma within ourselves and others mm. and maybe understand some of the workings of trauma, how it shows up and yeah. some of the harmful behaviour that can contribute or create trauma or re-traumatise people, all of that knowledge we can use to then treat people better and more sensitively and hopefully contribute to healing people rather than causing further harm. So in a friendship dynamic, what are the different ways that trauma can play out? Well, I suppose one of the things I try to generally focus on is not on excavating a friend's history. So friendship usually starts by us coming together because we meet somewhere, there's an initial liking, maybe a shared interest, and then over time, slowly starting to explore each other's histories a little bit more. I think being broadly trauma-informed is always helpful, but where that probably sits within a friendship initially is just knowing that they may have their stuff. Like, you know, we all have stuff, we all have baggage. Yeah. The stuff might be physical illness, it might be a disability, it might be, might be a mental health issue might be trauma, but there's a range of needs people have and what people bring. And I think one of the beauties of friendship is that we can really understand and we can really help the other carry the burden 
whatever burden it is. So trauma can kind of manifest within a friendship in, I guess, a range of ways. Um, and this is not a exhaustive list, mm. but traumatized people obviously understandably can have PTSD sometimes, which can mean that they're very anxious and maybe quite hypervigilant, maybe quite avoidant of certain situations. We're talking about complex trauma that can often cause broader difficulties in terms of how a person relates to the, the other. So there might be a push-pull dynamic and mm. pulling people closer, pushing them away. But that can also be down to a range of other things. Like I know when I have a bad day of sleep, I'm not very social. So you yeah. don't want to read too much into a person's behavior to assume trauma. But I suppose broadly speaking, trauma, especially complex trauma, which is largely what I focus on in my in my book Reclaim, leads to a range of difficulties in the way a person feels about themselves and, and, and about the world. And lack of trust, lack of a sense of this is where I belong, lack of trust that people like you. These are all the things that can happen with a history of trauma. And I think there's great power within friendship to start to heal that slowly, just through the joy that is knowing that your friends are there with you because they want to be. There's no other reason. There's no shared mortgage. There's no shared, you know, children. There's no other structural reason that they're there, except that they like you. And that's, I think, incredibly powerful. And also a bit scary, because what happens if they stop liking you? Yeah, that's right. But it seems to come down to trust. If you have a history of trauma, it can be hard to trust that somebody is Absolutely. there. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, trusting trusting people to have your best interests at heart, to, to hold you gently with care, to know that you share all of this difficult, vulnerable stuff and that they aren't going to turn on you. And also just trust that they're going to want to be there and that they're going to keep turning up. Yeah. That's that's huge. And trust is really essential for, for any human relationship, but especially for a close friendship, I think. Going back to forming new adult friendships then, yeah. I think when you've got friendships that have spanned decades, that you know, those friends might have that understanding about you, might have been there when certain things happened, you know, yeah. met your family, understood. So there's that trust built up over time then, yeah. Yeah, so in a new friendship, you know, you've met this person, they seem great, and as you start to get closer, these things, you know, more things are shared and then things start to yeah. show up. And so then when you don't have that deep connection just yet, it can be a bit tricky to navigate. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate what you said about don't try and excavate your friend's trauma, like let them share it as and when yeah. they're ready. And obviously you have to be up for hearing about it as well. And so there's that exactly. mutual yeah. consent. Always and, a consenting process, I think. Even in friendship, you don't want to dump something on someone if they aren't able to, to hear it. Yes. When you start to recognise that maybe you have a history of trauma, it seems to be really widespread. You know, it's almost like trauma is not that special. It loves I think there's a lot of complex trauma in the world. I think um, <laughs> there's maybe not as much single event trauma as we think, because when we think trauma, we often think PTSD that comes from a car crash. But what I often see is that the interpersonal relational trauma, so neglectful family or maybe a parent who was, who was quite emotionally abusive, those are the kinds of things that are actually really, really common. Mm. And just casting my mind through my own friendship network, I think of very, very few people who don't have some of those 
story. So I'd say, yeah, trauma is probably far more common, especially if we cast the net wider than the physical and the sexual abuse into, into the emotional realms. Yeah. I think the world's had a big history of not knowing how, how to relate, how to treat each other well with kindness, and that's probably what's coming through now, I think. Yeah, and so if it is quite widespread and you can end up in a situation where you're just kind of bouncing off each other's triggers, you know, you can have somebody with deep trauma who's got this kind of victim mentality, but then somebody else might be taking that very personally and, you know, it's triggering all of their trust issues. It can be a minefield. It can, but also ideally with our friends, we have friends because we like them Mm -hmm. and you spend some time with a person and you go, hey, you're you're my kind of person, I actually like you. And I mean, I'm going to be very blunt here. I think if there was someone who was just always sparking up and seemed to seem to get offended constantly because of their trauma, I'm not sure that I'd want to be very close to them. I'd probably be thinking that they needed to do a little bit of therapy work first Uh, but also because of my work I filter my own friendships very very carefully because I have very very limited emotional energy outside work so it is important for me to have friends who don't use me as their own therapist so I guess you know what you're kind of saying there comes down to a couple of things I think it comes down to people being self-aware which is usually the kind of friend that I that I look for personally. So someone who knows their own stuff so they aren't constantly surprised by their triggers because they understand their own psyche and if there is a certain trigger say i say something which maybe makes them feel like they weren't heard they can actually say that to me instead of becoming angry and reactive so i suppose it's about self-awareness and maybe having done some you know work but just a little bit of therapeutic work so you've got a bit of a handle on your own stuff And then pacing as well, because as you pace a friendship and as you slowly start to get to know each other instead of rushing into this really intense BFFs forever thing, you get to suss out the other person, you see how they respond to the world, and then you decide how close you want to let them. Most of my kind of friendships I pace very carefully, so someone doesn't get very close to me until... You know, I want to say about six months in because I like to watch them in a few different scenarios first. And it's not that I'm sitting there assessing them. I'm still there and present and I'm having fun. But I need to make sure that this is a person who's safe, who's trustworthy, who's going to understand me, who has a bit of a handle on their own internal functioning and who is going to understand and really, really respect my boundaries. So that's all stuff that you can't assess quickly. It needs, it needs time. And that just sounds so mature. <laughs> and Thank you. I worked hard at that. <laughs> that's the thing, because, you know, I think back to when I was a teenager, through my part-time work, I met like a new friend, and then yeah. suddenly... You and look, to... that's very common as a, as a younger person, and I certainly did that too. And that's a beautiful, lovely thing to do as a younger person, where I think you are freer, but I speak... I'm, I'm quite old and tired, so I have very limited energy. So I think this filtering process that I, that I engage in now is probably a little more extreme than it would be if I had a little bit more energy. Yeah, you know, my father used to say to me when, you know, I'd want to see a new friend all the time and I'd be very sort of black and white about it and just not understand yeah. what's the problem. And, and Dad would ca- caution me and say, you know, just 
go slow. You're going to get sick of each other. Just, you know, take your time, yeah. have a break, do something different. I've reflected on that advice since then. And I do feel this inner tension within myself sometimes where, mm. you know, I have that urge to see somebody and spend more time with them and keep getting to know them because, you know, it is a compelling new friendship. And then I do tend to kind of retreat a bit and kind of leave it and not send the text message or not suggest that catch up. And within me, it's like, well, what am I doing here? Is this some kind of a weird avoidant attachment style? Like, or is this... Well, it's hard to know and I'm not going to, not <laughs> going to tell you what your attachment style is because I don't know because it's a, because it's a very complex process to assess. I will say that when I form friendships, I tend to be reasonably spontaneous. So if I want to say something to a person, I'll say it. And I feel like the worst they can say is no. Um, and my social life has just changed absolutely dramatically since I adopted the I don't I don't care if a, a person rejects me stance. Um, but it sounds like your assessment might be a little bit more about whether the intensity is too much too too soon. And that's a useful one to be thinking through, to just allow a bit more pacing and a little bit of time to go away. Even as I give people advice about pacing and about not being too extreme, one of my other really strong focuses around just acceptance and knowing knowing that there's no way or no perfect way to optimize anything that you're going to be friends you're you're with a person because you enjoy their company there's click there so not not overthinking it just kind of allowing things to evolve and be and just having fun because life is pretty short oh that is so true so the what is it though? Is it like a dopamine hit that we get from, you know, when we form this new connection and, and what is it that makes us kind of want well, to? Well, I think human beings are very, very wired to be in, in you know, relationship. Um, and that's, that's not just an intimate relationship. That's, that's any, any type of relationship. And there's something new and something exciting sometimes about a new friend there's new stories there's there's new things to adventure through together um that can feel really nice and it can be nice to know that that mm. a that a person likes us yeah absolutely I, I have noticed in some friendship circles that you know there will be the, these sort of new connections and you know it's all looking very promising and there's a lot of sharing going on but then on the flip side if something is said that, you know, kind of, I don't know, isn't quite right, there's, there's big expectations of, you know, who you yeah. are to each other and the kind of support. And then there's yeah. also little tolerance for any mis missteps. And so... Yeah, I feel like that's a dangerous combination, isn't yeah. it? Because there's a lot of weight and there's a lot of deep kind of sharing. But for me, when I share something deep with, with a person, I want to know that they have my back and that they're going to stick around and know that I'm going to make mistakes sometimes, yes. that I'll be clumsy and I'll put my foot in it and I'll let them down. And that's the basis that most of my close friendships are built on, knowing that we're all just flawed, messy humans. Yes. Um, so I kind of struggle with this concept that our friends must always say and do exactly the right thing and that they must always support us and that if they're not there, then they've failed us. And I've seen friendships like that and I've, had friendships like that too and they don't last or at least mine haven't yeah whereas the ones that have now endured for me for decades have been 
ones with is this acceptance that you're going to stuff up at times and that's okay yeah that's just you being human you're in this world together just being messy but enjoying each other's company without kind of this real intensity and weight around you mean so much to me (laughs) i imagine that that intolerance for other people's mistakes might be related to one's intolerance for one's own mistakes I think so. I think yeah. if we've got really high standards in the sense of perfectionism or, again, some unhealed, un- unnoticed stuff, you know, say we've grown up in a family where we haven't ever been seen because our, because our parents were quite busy, it might feel really intolerable when a friend does the same to us. But if we don't have the, the awareness around that, you know, very, very specific emotional trigger, we might then get upset and we might lash out at a friend instead of being able to notice for ourselves that, hey, that old wound is coming up, but I'm not fine anymore. I know my friend means well. My friend is not my mum. So we really need to know what our stuff is so we can soothe some of that. And not everyone has that capacity to notice and name the old wounded patterns that can crop up a bunch of and this takes me to your you talk about psychologically safe relationships where you've got sort of mutually recognized and agreed upon limits and boundaries and yeah. and you navigate those boundaries together and you've got yeah. agreed expectations and there's always norms within a friendship and yeah. i guess that's what makes friendships so tricky because in romance you kind of have these this sort of understanding of what the norms are and in family, There's a template, can't... isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. There's Whereas in friendships, you don't talk about it. You don't actually have these yeah. conversations saying, look, here's what you are to me. You know? So I think we should be talking about it. I yeah. think that's probably one of the issues with the broader dating world at the moment, the fact that we assume that there are expectations and norms and that they aren't. I mean, there's, there's a lot more we could say about dating, but we won't go there. <laughs> I do think that one of the tricky things with friendship is that we don't have templates we don't know how to end a friendship for instance because Mm -hmm. that does happen we have this ideal that friendships last forever which they don't Um, and we don't really know how to talk about boundaries or how to let someone know when they've crossed our boundaries and we don't know how to actually receive that feedback as well without becoming defensive or angry so that can be tricky with friendships. And also, you know, you, you can have 20 friends and you'll have 20 different sets of boundaries with each person. So yeah. you kind of feel like a lot to juggle sometimes, maybe. And we haven't necessarily had it modelled for us by our parents. I mean, these, some of these concepts are all pretty new. Boundaries and trauma and being psychologically safe. Yep. <laughs> exactly um i'm kind of thinking about my parents friendships and i won't say very much because that's their story and that's kind of my the boundary to to hold for them but um yeah they were certainly very different it was more people being thrust together and just spending time together whereas i think we are maybe more intentional and i think looking for deeper connection now yeah and just a little bit more respectful as well maybe so I think so. I think we've moved away from the old tropes where you could make racist and sexist jokes and then you could say, oh, well, you know, I was just joking or just go to the pub together and get, and get absolutely smashed. I think there's more of a focus on psychological health, which is good, but it's kind of leaving us questioning sometimes maybe a little bit too much how to 
do some of these things, like make friends and kind of relate to each other. But if we can figure this out, then we have the opportunity to model it for our children. Exactly. And also model the not knowing because mm. we might do our best, but it might be hard to make friends at times and our friends might dump us at times and then we can learn emotional management and mm. model, model that for our kids. But I do think friendships are really important. We are one of those really underlooked, undervalued relationships and we focus on partnering up. But I think the drive to forming just a tiny nuclear family and turning away from community is what's really driving the really, really high rates of this of this deep loneliness that you know people feel and report. So I do think friendships and community is absolutely key. I agree, which is why if there's a way that we can figure out how to not just form friendships but make them last and get through mm. those tricky bits. And keep them, exactly, because yeah. you don't want to be making new, new friends every every week. That would be exhausting. <laughs> so can we talk about different attachment styles and how they tend to yeah. play out in friendships, whether in how they're formed or how they rupture? Well, I mean, I guess when we talk attachment styles, we're just talking about this really basic biological tension between push and pull. Mm. So the pull is to another person, I want to be close to you, and that starts because a, a infant's completely dependent on their primary caregiver's so attachment, and this close attachment between an infant and its usually mother or female caregivers, um, the crux of the attachment style. So if you look at all of the different attachment styles, there um, some form of balance between the pull toward another person and, and then the push toward independence. And we can either be quite anxious about our attachments or always wanting to be close to someone. We might be secure, which is where we can be close, then we can go away and be alone, or we might be more avoidant, which is the, I want to go away, I don't, I don't need you. And then there's the more disorganized style, which usually only happens with often very, very severe trauma when there's no discernible attachment pattern. And that's very, very tricky and comes with all kinds of psychological issues. So I suppose when we think of attachment, it's not just something that happens with the person's parents, but it's also how they see intimacy and closeness. And so it, it also often translates through to friendships and how quickly a person forms attachments, whether they're able to stay connected whether they're able to tolerate difficulties, whether they're able to see a friend and then kind of go off and do their own thing and then reconnect, but still feel connected. So there's a range of ways that attachment styles can play out. I mean, they can be very secure and we can be close to a friend and then we can go off and then do our own thing for, for a couple of weeks and maybe we don't come them, but we don't immediately jump to thinking, well, my friend hates me. We just know that they're probably busy and we send a text saying, hey, how are you going? Or there's the more avoided attachment, which is I don't really need you and people who struggle to be close to people. Mm. And then there's the anxious attachment style, which is the really intense, really fused form, form of friendship. Where if a person doesn't text you back, you immediately move to thinking that they, that they hate you and seeking reassurance. I suppose that's how it plays out really in terms of how close a person can be to others and whether they can tolerate separation. So what's the breakdown generally? Like in terms, do we know percentage of the population? Is it a fairly even split? I think 50% of the population is secure. I'm reasonably sure about that stat. Wow. Um, could be wrong. 
and I don't want to Google, but I'm not sure what the breakdown is between the others. Yeah. But um, I'm pretty sure I remember reading it for people that of of the population has good good secure attachment. Wow, that gives me hope. Like that's the lot. that's not perfect, of course. I mean, people who are who are securely attached still have fights. They still have bad days. It's not it's not a magic pill. Yeah, and we tend to fluctuate between the different styles that have like a dominant one. Exactly. So when people talk about attachment, there's this idea that your attachment style is one style and that it's absolutely everything. And that, that's why I say it's not a magic pill. I think it's useful to see it as the base kind of foundation, just as you'd have a foundation for a house, but then you build the house on top of that. So, so there's a lot lot of other stuff that goes towards psychological health and you can actually move between the different styles you can have traits from each you might be avoidant in one relationship but you aren't feeling very sure and you might be very secure in a second relationship so i think it's important to see these more as tendencies than as defined kind of styles or buckets that we sit in it's not a fixed thing so somebody who has dominant avoidant attachment style, what are they seeking from friendship? I think right. it's more avoidant attachment is a sense of, I don't trust that you're going to stick around, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to let you in. And there's a sense of, I'm just going to go away over there and do my own thing. But we all need to live in community unless a person, say, has schizoid personality disorder which is another thing entirely that we won't go into now but they're really the only people i've known who don't seek any connection but but even people who are more avoidant will still seek and need connection they just find it harder to kind of tolerate closeness at times and they may instinctively when they feel threatened or challenged default to i'm going to go away over there and be by myself instead of coming in closer Okay, so so they want to be close, but they don't trust you. They trust themselves, maybe that mm. that being that being close to people is something that feels good that they need. Yeah, because yeah. they've been let down. Yeah, yeah. In the past. Yeah. So avoidant attachment is really someone's hurt me or someone hasn't been there when I've needed them. Keeping in mind, attachment comes from really the first few months of life. So a baby was left crying in a cot by itself. It learns that mom isn't going to come and feed or cuddle it, so it learns to self-soothe. And then it just starts to shut down and goes, I'm not going to signal a need for you because there's no point. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of the key genesis of this more avoided attachment style. Jesus, makes you rethink the whole idea of sleep training. I am very much not in favour of control crying. <laughs> Yeah, and I know that there's lots of debates and not across the current research. I'm not going to say too much about it because I don't want to weigh in where I'm, where I'm not fully informed. But for me, as a trauma therapist, the idea of just leading a baby to cry it out just feels very, very wrong. But again, I know that there are parents out there who are very, very sleep deprived and I think at times you have to do the best you can for yourself. So really important to, to walk that fine line between your needs and the baby's needs. And some babies are really, really bad sleepers. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about the disorganized attachment mm. style where you've got both the push and the pull at play? Look, it's 
going to be hard to notice when that's happening because keep in mind assessing attachment styles is something that's um, a very specialized field mm. it's not something that i could do based on a snapshot of a person's behavior so we don't want to be excavating too much or maybe reading too much into a person's friendship style i think if we're noticing that someone's unavailable or you know very inconsistent we probably just want to be having the conversation with them and as i as i do with most things saying when you did this i felt this instead of thinking that a friend has disorganized attachment yeah, or yeah. suggesting that they do because we don't know and it's important i think not to psychologize mm-hmm. someone else or try and pathologize them and so yeah. if you've got somebody who is kind of there and all in and then suddenly retreats and, and there's a wall that comes yeah. up but then then they're back in again and can you just yeah. say to them i don't know like are you okay are we okay um i really yeah, enjoy exactly. our friendship but i notice sometimes you know you seem quite closed yep and that's perfect so you're really naming the behavior you're not talking about, about attachment because we don't know you know it could be that we have a friend who has um, really bad bad insomnia mm. but they're all in when they've slept and then they kind of go away because they're because they're tired mm. so it's always about naming the behavior and saying i've noticed that at times you feel really available but then you kind of disappear and i and i don't i don't see you for a few months and that feels hurtful okay yeah and then just allowing them to think about it instead of forcing answers and yeah or a artificial quick you know solution and again friendships about this really fine tension between another person's needs and and yours and their lifestyle and yours and trying to understand and navigate and really marry the two can be can be tricky but that's that's the job of friendship sometimes and that's the beauty of it absolutely say there's a rupture in terms of getting to repair i imagine an anxious attachment style might be really keen to like try and resolve it yep let's just talk about it and fix it now and someone with who might need a little bit more time to go away and think about it maybe they're avoidant maybe they're just a slow processor and need, need a bit more time that's often when that dissonance can start to feel really hard because mm-hmm. the anxiously attached person or the more anxious person um, is left kind of waiting and having to hold their anxiety yeah and that flight into I want to fix things can often just be about don't want to feel anxious anymore. So if we just fix this, then then we're okay, and then I don't have to feel this way again. Yeah. Oh. And what about yeah. what about shame? Where does shame come into blocking repair? Well, I think shame is effectively something that says I'm a bad person. The guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I'm a bad person. And if we feel like we're bad, and we've got the fundamental sense of I'm bad, we're not really going to put someone away because we probably believe that we don't deserve it or we're not going to forgive us and maybe we close the door on ourselves preemptively or maybe we beat ourselves up so much that we forget to just be self-compassionate to know that we're all messy human beings i've spoken on the pod about some of my friendships that have ruptured and then i've had other guests on the show as well who've spoken about their friendship ruptures and often we'll get to a point where we'll kind of acknowledge that oh yeah okay 
I can see how that could have gone differently or what what might have been going on for the other person and yeah some of the things that I was reacting to and so we get to a point where it's like oh okay there's this kind of acceptance and I get I don't know if closure is the right word but you're feeling like okay I've got my head around what happened I understand it yeah no hard feelings and yet there is a block in terms of Mm. then returning to that person who you had the rupture with and reaching out and saying hey I've been thinking about this and you know here's my understanding of what transpired and kind of clean it up and yet we're not doing it (laughs) and is it shame the question is do you want to do it because I'm thinking about the friendships that I've had which have ended and you know I had a couple in my early 20s that were really pivotal and key friendships but ended for a range of reasons and usually because I or the other person wasn't being fully honest about how we felt and were more conflict avoidant than I am now. But I don't know that I'd want to go back to those friendships. I don't know that I think it would be helpful to kind of talk it out because I'm not sure what the point would be. I feel like thinking through some of those, I've changed a lot and I don't know what kind of the purpose would, would be. Yeah, look, I'm not sure I've got the answers there. No, I've I've sort of wondered the same thing. Like, what what is the point? What am I trying to achieve? And I think, well, on one hand, it's just kind kind of cleaning it up, right? You just yeah, you're going back to the other person. You don't know where they're at, and you're taking responsibility for your part in it. And that could be a freeing thing for them. And if you've done something awful, or if there was a really difficult end, and if you feel like you want to go back to make amends or to apologize or something like that, then yes, there could be utility in, in that. But also, I guess the tricky thing then is if it's been five or 10 years and the person doesn't know you're coming and are you going in just to make yourself feel better? Are you intruding on their life now, bringing up some difficult memories to help yourself feel better? I guess that's mm. one of the questions that crosses my, my mind. Um, also curious about this concept of having to clean things up always you know what that means and why we need to clean things up whether it's okay knowing that these things are just inherently messy at times and that sometimes they can be hurt feelings and that happens as part of the course of life and we do our best to take the learning that we've had into our future relationships so that they don't end the same way and I think that's what I've done with all of my friendships breakups as I've thought about what I contributed and now I try and make sure to not repeat those those patterns but I'm not sure that it feels like it would be helpful to go back and rehash some of that territory with people I don't want in my life now Mm. again that's very sensible (laughs) I'm just very pragmatic (laughs) I'm kind of like if stuff doesn't need to be stirred up I'm not going to stir it up yeah okay (laughs) Life is hard. We probably don't want to overcomplicate things for ourselves. Amen to that. <laughs> I know. And people, people, yeah, that's probably, or possibly, possibly surprised you a little bit because I know there's this idea that, you know, psychologists always think we should talk about things and that mm. there should always be closure. Um, also, sorry if you can hear squeaking in the background. That's just my dog, but she'll add to the podcast. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I think that talking too much can sometimes be you know, problematic and especially this idea of closure when I work with stalkers one of the key things they usually say is I stalk because I want a closure 
and we don't always get closure you know people yeah. are afraid to make their choices and people are afraid to kind of leave us as well and sometimes accepting that and knowing that that thing belonged in a certain part of my life and now it's over is the only closure that we that we have sometimes and that's and that's okay mm. okay i'm going to take that away and sit with that for, <laughs> think about it <laughs> absolutely no i mean that's really freeing and yeah. Yeah, I have wondered, is, is it enough just to take the learning and apply that to current and future relationships and, and not have to go back and, as you say, dredge things up again? What I've wondered about is where I know I've behaved poorly, like I'd like to, you know, just maybe it's just a very simple note to say, hey, I've been thinking about it, yeah. I could have done better, I hope you're good, and just know that our friendship meant a lot to me and thank you for yeah. everything. I mean, that's a lovely thing to do, I think. Um, and again, depending on what on what happened, um, you know, assuming the person's open to kind of receiving that, that can be a very healing, kind and caring message. But it's also okay to simply move on, to note for yourself that you were just learning, you know, I'm guessing that you didn't hurt people deliberately, most of us don't. Um, we're just carrying our stuff in the world and 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 sometimes bump into other people with with that. And just kind of knowing and noticing for ourselves and being self-compassionate and knowing that I'll do better next time is sometimes enough. Okay. Well, thank you for that um, pass. <laughs> I feel like you've given me a pass out. No, I appreciate yeah. that when you talked about relational safety in the book and you know and what that means and it's about accepting ourselves and other people and knowing that nobody's perfect that it's impossible and, yep. and to allow people some latitude and give them some grace to make their mistakes and not kind of write them off as a result and understand that you don't know the full story and what's going on with that person but you and how you show up in that relationship is honest and, and open and truthful and, and, and there, that you assume that you're going to do your best and that the other person will as well yes and that you have grace for each other i think is really important yes and to have that self-awareness and consistency to you know to yeah. operate with that consistency and self-awareness and, and to um, back it up with the self-reflection and, and knowing what like that you, you say it's a tall order, right, <laughs> to operate well, with... I mean, I, I think that's why most of my friends are psychologists. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, just, I was just thinking about that as you were talking. I suppose it is a tall order, but it's the kind of stuff psychologists typically do anyway. Yeah. So that's probably why over time I feel like my circles and I've been drawn more and more to... to fellow psychologists because they do this kind of self-reflection and thinking and they and they know their own stuff so there's very little chance that I'm going to trip over their stuff and if I do they they can tell me they don't they don't show me but I mean that that is like some real emotional intelligence and self-awareness yep. and you know I have a lot of people in my life who are working on that but it's sometimes you're there sometimes you're not 
And don't get me wrong, I have bad days as well. There's weeks where I just disappear and I'm tired and I let my friends know sometimes. Sometimes I don't, but that's where the grace comes in, where they where they know that I'm that I'm not blowing them off, that I'm just tired. You know, it's it all basically it suggests that being a safe person is really hard. <laughs> I mean it could be. But also, you know, thinking about who a safe person is, I usually just try and treat people the way I want to be treated. Mm. That's kind of the crux of how it, of what the concept of a, of, a, of a safe person is. I, you know, respect what a person says. So if they, if they say they don't want to drink, I don't push them. Yeah. I, if I'm with a person, it's because I genuinely care about them and I don't want to hurt them. And that's kind of really the crux of... But you know, sometimes it doesn't feel hard. Yeah. Well, sometimes I see the flip side of that, where people think, "Well, I wouldn't do that." You know, so so and so did X, Y, and Z, and I wouldn't do that. Well, I see. I I work with people who do some really horrible things, and I'm talking about my mm-hmm. my work with with the people who've offended and who've engaged in crime. And I know that, given the right circumstances, most of us would do do awful things so i think it helps me hold a little bit more compassion and i usually say to myself that i would make a different choice which i think is a softer way of saying i wouldn't do that Mm -hmm. and because inherently in my line of work i see really messy things and i see affairs and grievances and all kinds of feuds i don't hold as much judgment because i know that human beings make a lot of mistakes then it's hard to be human and yeah. i think that probably helps me with my my friendships yeah well for me i think you know reading reclaim and having that understanding of you know how trauma works and shows up is i think going to be really helpful in terms of how i approach people in general and sort of tread carefully and be able to show that grace and also be more aware of what's going on within me and when what's being triggered in me by certain things. I've seen a, a dynamic play out recently where a friend's in need and then someone might swoop in with the saviour complex or, or something. You know, they swoop in and they really, like, go all out to um, help that person out. And you kind of wonder what's, what's going on there because it's not – it's a disproportionate amount yeah. of – Support. It's more of a rescuing, not a caring as much. Yeah, you maybe. You know, how do you how can you tell the difference? How do you know when someone's trying to rescue you versus caring for you? How do you know when you're rescuing instead of just supporting? Well, my rules for that are that if a person can do something for themselves, then I don't usually offer to do it because I mean, I've grown up in a family where there was a lot of dependence on other people and this real sense of having to do things for other people, even though they were perfectly capable, which is not to say that I'm not going to cook a friend who's, who's just had a brand new baby for meal. That's an, an act of caring. But as a general rule, if I feel like a person has capacity, then I don't question and it's I think there's a fine line, you know, because back in the day I used to I used to rescue and what I'd say to people was you can call me anytime, I'll be there always. What I say to people now is I'm here if you need. 
what can I do to help? And I say that to fewer people. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe that's the difference for me, where when you care and support, you're not taking away a person's agency. You're not doing to them. You're asking them what they need and you're trying to do what you can for them within your own capacities, but you're not absorbing yourself wholly and fully in their need. You've still got a level of separation and a sense of this is what I can offer. So what's driving that sort of compulsion to rescue and fix? I think some people are used to doing it from childhood. There's a sense of this is how I worked to earn love within my own family. Usually being that sort of person gets you a lot of praise and I had a lot of recognition and that can feel good. Um, Other times people have really low self-worth and there's a sense of, well, I need to earn my place in this friendship. To be needed can also be really powerful because if you're needed, then people can't leave. And some people authentically like to help, but I do think that when there's a level of rescuing instead of just caring that isn't driven just by wanting to care, but there's often something a little bit deeper there. And also sometimes people just don't know about boundaries and they haven't ever been taught to stop and go, am I helping or am I doing too much? Yeah, look, I have also had the tendency to try and, you know, rescue in the past. And, you know, you can kind of ask yourself, what can I do here? And you can do so much, really, really. You can do so much for anyone. And then it's a matter of, well, how much is reasonable? And then what determines what is reasonable? You know, I um, had a colleague at work. She was a deeply unhappy person in hindsight. There was drama. There was drama at work there was drama in her relationship she was really unhappily married she wanted to leave she felt guilty you know so you kind of i found oh, myself it's a lot of, of information to have like, a colleague as well yes. i'm not sure i'd be happy if, if my colleague dumped all of that on me yeah it was it was i really was kind of drawn into this and this person and she mm-hmm. wanted to move out and she didn't have anywhere to live and and we had a spare room so i said come and stay you're welcome to stay oh no yeah yeah but then you know it's funny because she had a friend who she stayed with who had a very large house and a husband and whatever and she had plenty of room and the friend made the same offer but after a few days she asked this woman to leave and so that was sort of also part of the sob story of like well my friends asked me to leave I'm you know I'm not sure why but I'm really stuck and so I said come 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 and stay and then (laughs) in the morning the very first morning after she'd stayed she came out of her bedroom wearing a loose t-shirt with nothing underneath and was walking around my home in this t-shirt and (laughs) my husband is there and I just I mean look it's I know my husband but I just thought my god what are you what are you doing and then I thought oh this is why your friend asked you to leave because if that's what you were doing around her place, like, you know, and and so she ended up not staying super long because I started to think, oh, something's not quite right here, you know, and she left and then she sort of left the country and sort of never heard from again. And, and I, I really took that as this learning of this incredibly sort of 
a self-absorbed person who was really invested in their own victimhood, who was a bit of a taker, and then just kind of was done with you, you know? Look, I mean, I guess it's difficult to know what what to say. I usually try to not make statements about a person who I, who I haven't met. Mm. So, you know, there could be a range of things there um, in relation to why she left the country. But what I'm hearing was kind of poor boundaries around workplace communication and maybe around how she lived in your home as well, which would have been um, difficult. Yeah, well, you know, but at that time I thought, but I have a spare room. I can give. I can give so much more. And what's stopping me? Which is lovely. But, yeah, I mean, I wonder if that's the kind of helping that you keep for a close friend. Yeah. Or someone who's really, really in need, like a friend who's fleeing family violence, sure. Yeah, and, Mm. and I think that was at the end of it. I really kind of had to think, okay, at what point do I draw the line in future? Mm. And well, I felt like to know it's very situation dependent, isn't it? Yeah, based on the person as well, well and on how they treat your home and how how comfortable you feel. Yeah, it's very subjective, you know, where we choose to draw exactly. that line. So now I find myself drawing the line, but then there's a part of me that feels like I'm a bad friend because I could be doing more. Okay. Yeah, but don't know if could means should always. Mm. I think there's a lot that we could be doing, but we have finite resources, energy and time and um, there's a certain point at which we need to draw the line. I usually draw the line firmly at the start and then move the line. So once I get to know someone, I move the line back because by then I've worked out more kind of comfortably who they are and that comes back to the pacing that we talked about earlier. Yes. And enabling? Like what is enabling behaviour as opposed to supporting? Yeah. Questions. So then you're enabling another person's bad behavior through your actions. And I guess if you're always jumping into kind of rescue, and that's why it's said that when a person can do something for themselves, they don't. Yeah, because I think sometimes we, we need to allow people to be uncomfortable. Absolutely. Otherwise, people are not going to learn. Yeah. Like with a child, you scaffold them, you help them through things, you support them but then you let them extend themselves a little bit. You let them take a little bit of a risk. That's right, because if I swoop in and take away all of the discomfort, then yeah. then nothing changes. Whatever has happened to create what it, the dynamic that, that is presenting at that time doesn't get a chance to change necessarily, right? You've got to, for somebody to really reconsider and change their internal dynamic or a relationship dynamic, you need to experience some pain. Yeah, exactly. And it's up to us to kind of walk on pathway in the world and people can accompany us, but they're not going to carry us. Yeah. They're, they're alongside us. And asking for help. Some people are very good at asking for help and then that can trigger people who aren't so good at asking for help. And then the judgment comes in and saying, geez, you know, this person has some nerve. Oh, this person is very entitled. Yeah, I think it comes back to us knowing our own stuff, doesn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. The kinds of things that trigger us and understanding why we have the strong judgment toward another person's way of being in the world and sorting through whether it, whether it is because they are asking too much and because they're pushing our boundaries mm. or whether that's more about us. And so even somebody who you might perceive as having a victim mentality 
that then comes back to you and it's like well what does that say about me yeah what does that say about about my own relationship to weakness Mm, to weakness love that (laughs) yeah because it's about not being able to tolerate somebody else showing weakness I think when things feel a certain way and when our feelings about a certain thing is very strong, then there's usually something there that's helpful to maybe reflect on and think about a little bit more. Yeah. You know, what is it about this person that feels so picky at this point in time? So even like that person is an opening for you to learn about yourself, even if what they're doing is, is really annoying you. That's, yeah. that's an opportunity to say, well, why? I mean, look, it might be that they're just a really an annoying person and that's, <laughs> and that's okay. Um, so I'm not saying this is, that this is all about you. You know, you might, you might go through a process of thinking through it and go, you know what, I just don't like them. And that is absolutely okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we are, we are not going to like everyone in the world. There's 8 billion people. You're not going to like them all. Yeah. But you can still like go, okay, there's something about that person that I don't like that's, that's you know, stirring something in me and I can look at that and still choose to not spend time with this person. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can do all kinds of internal work and reflection, but essentially if I don't like this person, then I don't like them. Mm. That's just narrative sometimes. Yeah. Oh, I love you just giving me so much permission here to just <laughs> let things go and not overthink. Yeah. I think thinking is important, but we want to be careful not to overanalyze or to move into paralysis because we're thinking through things in so much detail. I think there's a level at which the sense of rumination can become overpowering and it's a fine line between thinking and noticing our feelings and paying attention to our, to our thoughts and feelings and our past, but then going, you know what, I'm just, I'm just the way I am. Yeah. That is that is okay, and I'll try and do better, but I also find the way I am. That's the balance that I like to walk. Mm. I wanted to just ask, is it a truism that if you see somebody divulging somebody else's confidences to you, that they are likely doing the same to you with others? God, I don't know if there's been any research around that, but I'm going to say that I wouldn't personally trust that person. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on what sort of confidence it is. I think smaller ones that aren't entirely meaningful, sure, we all do that at times. Yeah. But if it it was something really big or something really meaningful that would say to me that this person doesn't understand trust and boundaries. Yeah. And we do know that past behaviour is the best of future behaviors so if someone's doing that elsewhere i would assume that they would probably be doing that with me as well yeah great good yeah good advice okay so to, i'm gonna wrap it up that we've had such a wide-ranging chat which i'm just loving and i can't wait to listen back so you mentioned you know at the start about how hard it is in in the modern world and society that holds up individualism and self-interest and you know there's so much polarization and whether it's social or political polarization and all of this is impacting our close personal relationships Mm. so what are some nice neat tips that you can share with our listeners about how to manage this within our friendships you know some people just say i'm just not going to talk politics is that realistic 
I think this idea of not talking politics is difficult because essentially your politics are a reflection of who you are. I would say find friends who are more closely values aligned. So if you're focused on social justice and fairness, it's likely that they are going to be true people who who care about the world. And so whether they vote differently doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And essentially we all have freedom. I think bringing grace, bringing understanding, um, knowing when something's a really hot button topic that maybe we want to step away from temporarily. Mm. Uh, um, not being afraid to ask for hard questions at times, um, but also knowing that we are different people. We all have our own sociopolitical histories. We all have our own family histories. And so we're all going to think differently. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. I think this idea that we know the right way to live and that other people have it wrong. That's something we all carry, and I think that's really problematic. Yeah, that's right, because the temptation is to just stick to people who agree with us and end up in an exactly. echo chamber. Exactly, yeah, and to some extent, look, we do want a certain values alignment. Look, I don't think I could be close friends with someone who is, for instance, a Trump voter, mm. but it's not to say that I couldn't have someone like that in my more peripheral circle. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Gurdjieff. Yeah. It's been such a great chat. I really appreciate your time. While I've read Reclaim, I haven't yet gotten to Life Skills for a Broken World, so I'm so looking forward to getting stuck into it. Well, there's actually a chapter on finding your tribe, and there's also one on, on helping other people without rescuing. So. Well, I think it's going to be one of those books that I keep on my bedside table for handy reference. Um, so thank you for that. You're doing such remarkable and important work and I for one am very grateful to you and really appreciate your time today. Very kind words. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking and I look forward to listening to the podcast. Mm. Awesome. Friendings has been created by me, Sabina Shah, on Paramount Country. Writing, production and sound engineering also by yours truly. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate and review or tell your friends about it. It really helps, so thank you for that. Feel free to get in touch via Instagram at friendings.show. Whoa.